This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson, and this week we are going to take a deep dive into The Officer's Wife and the podcast you've been listening to. I'm joined by the narrator of our of our podcast, and also, as you'll find out, uh, a gentleman who's done quite a bit of investigating uh, of this particular case. He is Brendan Keefe. He is chief investigator at WXIA 11 Alive in Atlanta, Georgia. Brendan, thanks for being here. Hey, good to be here. And also for our wrap-up show, Jessica Knoll, Vault Studios investigative journalist. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit on our process for this podcast, if you don't mind, to get started here uh, and let our listeners know that, Brendan, as we were putting all this together, of course, we reached out to you and we really wanted you to narrate it. You're a busy guy. You're a journalist. You're covering a lot of uh, a lot of different stories for WXIA in Atlanta, and uh, we were really happy to have you be our, our voice, our narrator. But as it goes, you were actually really involved in this case from the get-go, and, and I would say maybe you've covered this case uh, about as much as anyone out there. Yeah, we kind of discovered this along the way, just like the listeners of the podcast did. You know, new details would come in or we would find something uh, unexpected in the case file. And that's what would get us excited about discovering, you know, the next clue and the next clue. And so the way we investigated this is really the way everyone listened to it. And so to narrate this and and listen to it again myself, sort of, it was like reliving that experience of discovery. And it's still one of the most baffling cases in my three-decade career. Yeah. And I want to talk to you about that uh, because I think it's baffling for us and for listeners. And not every case is sort of, you know, something we can put together in a nice little package and say, this is what happened. Certainly that is the case with this story. And I wish I'd been with you and Jessica back in 2016 when you first started digging into this case. But Jessica, you were also along for the ride in the early days of Brendan uh, sort of digging into this case for WXIA, right? Right. Um, I had actually just started at WXIA in October 2016 when I, Brendan brought this story into us, and and I was, you know, excited to dig into this as my first uh, big story there at Eleven Alive. But I think Brendan, um, what's interesting to me is kind of how you came across this story, and folks who've listened to this podcast all the way through will recognize who first approached you. Yeah, you know, Sheila Matthews was working on this before anyone because, of course, as the publisher of The Grip, she was reporting on this from really the moment it happened, uh, reporting on there had been a shooting at an officer's apartment, and she stayed on it as a dogged investigative reporter. I didn't see any of that. I was actually contacted by Will Sanders, uh, who at that time was a confidential informant to both Sheila Matthews and to me uh, in parallel. Uh, Will and I had met on another story of corruption within the same county. And as I was interviewing him for that story, he said, you know, I've got this other case. And he had just received the GBI case file disc. And he and I were opening it together and looking at the body camera video together. 
and we were starting to ask questions together. And I didn't even know if it was going to be a story. It was just something I was looking at on the side until there were more questions than answers. And at the end, we still have more questions than answers. Jessica, you worked uh, extensively and co-hosted our Bardstown podcast where uh, there were there there are a string of murders uh, in a small town in Kentucky. No answers there either. So not afraid of tackling a story that that doesn't have a clean ending. No, and I also think that, um, you know, with Bardstown being a cold case, not cold cases, but unsolved cases, and and this case uh, being what is considered solved but still super questionable, um, I think it brings the listener in to ask those questions and to try to like Brendan and and any investigative journalist does, you know, hold those people accountable. Don't just let the questions slide by. Let, you know, bring those questions forward and and in a sense demand answers. And I think in in this particular case with Jessica, um those answers were were never given. Um there's so many left wondering what is going on here? And I think that, you know, for for a podcast and for a story, it's, for one, it's very intriguing, but also it, it brings it to the forefront and it asks those questions and it, it demands answers. And so hopefully the more exposure that this case gets, whether it's our podcast or, or other stories, national stories have been done, um, you know, we're hoping that some answers will come from this, much like Bardstown. Yeah, I had to retrain myself as a local news reporter, even an investigative reporter, because, you know, we're used to reporting, you know, being the omniscient narrator of we kind of know how this ends. In fact, local news usually comes out, you know, a typical local news story on this case would be a police officer's wife found shot in the head, but she survived and says she didn't do it. Well, you know, that's not the way this story really unfolded. That's kind of the the overarching title, but it's not the story. The story hides in what we don't know. And that's new for me as a journalist with this case back in 2016, because I went to my bosses and said, this is an amazing story. And my executive produ- producer said, well, okay, what's what's the end of this whole investigation? And I said, I don't know. And then he said, well, we don't report stories that we haven't figured out what happened. And I said, well, the old show back in the 80s was called Unsolved Mysteries. If it was called Solved Mysteries, no one would have watched. Right. And there's a prevailing theory uh, among a lot of people who uh, are in the world of podcast or even TV shows that, you know, people want to have an ending. I, I think there's certainly some truth to that. But not every story does, and and we've made that point clearly with with the officer's wife. Uh, and if you've listened all the way through, you, you may be left asking a lot of questions, as we still are. Brendan, I'm interested to hear that that background on, on this because I know along the way, Jessica and I talked about how do we want to approach this, how do we want to tell it. Matthew Boynton has been cleared of anything, uh, of any crime or any involvement in what happened to Jessica that night, uh, and, and so you know the ruling was made. It's official. Uh, it doesn't mean we can't continue to look at these questions, which is what you have done. So I'm going to try to go through this a bit chronologically, if I if I may. Um, and before I do that, actually, just one other point as we talk about this idea of of a story that doesn't really have a clear answer for a lot of people. 
The craziest thing about it might be that the person at the center of it, Jessica Boynton, now Jessica Lester, survived. She was there. She experienced what happened, but she doesn't remember it, as as everyone now knows. Yeah, that's right. I mean, actually, it seems a foregone conclusion now that Jessica uh, Jessica Lester, then Jessica Boynton, would do an interview with us and would talk for this podcast. I mean, she has interviewed with everybody since. Uh, but at the time, it was a big question. In fact, to me, the whole investigation on our part was hinging on whether she would sit down and talk with us. And it was Will Sanders who said, yeah, I've talked with her. She will sit down with you. And that first interview, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, we've all kind of met Jessica now. We all understand the world in which she lived. But at the time, I was sitting down not knowing what she was going to say. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, the because I have an open mind as an investigator. Could she be making all of this up? Could she have um, imagined some of these details? But here's the problem with sort of questioning her credibility on this. One, her story has never changed. It has remained the same from day one and every interview. That's tough to do if you're lying. Keeping truth straight is not hard. Keeping lies straight is very hard because you have to remember which lie you've told. And then in addition to that, if she is lying, why didn't she just make up and remembering what happened? If she's making the whole thing up, she could have said, well, I distinctly remember Matthew entering the closet and putting the gun to my head. But that's not what she said. She consistently doesn't remember. And I think it's interesting in the podcast where she says, you know, I don't need to remember because I know in my soul what happened. That's really fascinating. And Brendan, you talked to her relatively early on. How, how long was it after, you know, the, this all happened that you first sat down with her? It was one of the first interviews I did. Of course, I went through the entire GBI case file, which is extensive. It's where most of the material of the podcast comes from. But imagine listening to that for the first time, you know, other than Will Sanders and Sheila Matthews, you know, Jessica Noel and I were the only ones listening to these interviews with uh, DeMarco and and with uh, Matthew Boynton. And there's these moments that just surprise you. You're like, I just found out the baby, the second baby's not mine and things like that, where you have these wow moments. But then when I sat down with Jessica, it was very early on in in the investigation that we were doing. And that's why, you know, a good investigative interviewer listens more than talks. Um, I'm kind of infamous for being a talker, but not in an interview. In an interview, I'm listening to every word because the next question is coming from the answer I'm hearing right now from the interview subject. And so Jessica really directed the interview uh, because you know she was telling us what was happening. And then the next question was based on what she was saying. Okay. I want to go through a bunch of points uh, that come up throughout the podcast. And, and as I said, we'll try to do this somewhat chronologically. When she's found in the closet that night and, and that event, the, the, of course, the, the big event of this whole story, one thing that sticks out for a lot of people is the text, the suicide text, if you will, uh, that she sent to Matthew's cell phone. We have learned, uh, I, I don't think we actually mention it specifically in the podcast, but that's the point of this episode. We can bring up a lot of points we didn't get to. Uh, her cell phone was actually in the closet. Um, it was found uh, lying on the floor next to a shell casing. But Jessica, if, if that text was sent, but it wasn't sent from Jessica Lester, then somebody else sent it. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that we know 
for sure is that a text message was sent from Jessica's phone to Matthew's phone. We don't know who sent it. We don't know if Jessica sent it. We don't know if someone else sent it from her phone and left it in the closet. Um, So we can't assume that Jessica sent it just because it was sent from her phone. Because as you know, anyone can send a text from anyone's phone, um, especially, and here's a little uh, assumption, but I mean, assuming someone is um, out of commission, you can use their phone to send anything you want. So um, we really, there's no way to know um, who sent that actual message to Matthew's phone that night. You know, Jessica, you and I talked about this early on. I remember, you know, it's sort of our investigative um, tradecraft is we don't report what we think we know. We report what we know. So instead of reporting Jessica sent a message to Matthew, we report a text was sent from Jessica's phone to Matthew's phone because that's all we know. And so we report what we know, not what we think we know. But discovering that the phone was found in the closet is sort of evidence of either possibility. You know, that closet, you know, this whole podcast could have been called Schrodinger's Closet because every piece of evidence in that closet um, is evidence of one of the narratives or the other. Um, and, you know, there's so many things that are troubling the lock on the door, the the lack of blood spatter on the wall, the pillow where her head rested, the angle that Sheila brought up where the bullet holes are just, it's really hard to explain these trajectories of bullets. But the other thing is she was also against the door to the point where the officers had to not only kick the door in, but push their way in, which is another one of those things where if she fell there and didn't move, that tends to support an attempted suicide because how would you place a a body essentially against a door so that you have to push it open and then still get out yourself? Uh, But then there's another theory, of course, that she moved around, but then there's the lack of, of blood, you know, drips on the, you know, or spatter on the floor of her moving. The whole thing is so confounding, but for such a small space (laughs) that the evidence in that closet tells so many different stories. And I don't know, I'm no closer to the truth today than I was in 2016. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a a fair point. You know, you and and Sheila and I, I think, get asked a lot. In fact, putting this podcast together, I've been asked several times, well, what do you think happened? And the truth is, I don't know any more than any of our listeners do. Uh, You know, we're just here to give you the information we have, the facts we have, and what others have to say about all of this. Um, but I'm no closer either to knowing what really happened inside that closet. I think the only person that will ever know um, and who will ever speak about it would be Jessica if she could ever remember. Yeah, but here's what we do know. We do know that the investigation was botched. And that's not an opinion. That's just fact. Because you have really a conclusion-selective investigation. And Sheila Matthews became a participant in it by you know, uh, un, un, you know, unintentionally so by talking with uh, assistant special agent in charge DeMarco, you know, where he was inventing scenarios for the phone not being in the kitchen when we all know it was in the kitchen. That's the definition of conclusion selective investigation. When you try to get the facts to fit your narrative instead of trying to find out what story the facts tell. 
I want to talk a little bit about uh, an area of this story that we bring up uh, several times, but it has to do with Matthew Boynton's repeated calls, reports, uh, or requests for uh, reports from the police department over the years having to do with their relationships. So, you know, domestic situations where he would he would call the police to come over and write up a report. Uh, I, I believe Jessica did this at least once as well, possibly more, but I, but I know that Matthew did this fairly often over the years. It, it strikes some listeners, it strikes me as odd. It's almost, it's almost like he is setting up a timeline uh, for an end result. And that's, and, and that's not my opinion. That is what listeners have come to their conclusion is that he was trying to have a backstory to this this night in the closet. Uh, Brendan, what are your thoughts about why he would call his grandfather every time they had an argument or make a police report? I mean, there was I mean, there's a number of police reports that that he called when he, you know, alleges that she hit him or they were arguing and 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 then that final police report from that night when Trammell comes and makes a report, but he never even checks on Jessica for a domestic call. Yeah, that that whole the whole story sort of hinges on this. You know, there's a text message uh, from Lieutenant Keyes saying, look for patrol car. And then a text back to Lieutenant Keyes from Matthew's phone saying Trammell is here. And so there's already this sort of paper trail of him being there. And then the only explanation we have of that visit and that frankly, the GPS data showing that Trammell was there hours before any reports of shots fired um, is this report that's written hours after the shooting. You know, if you get to write the details, you know, after all facts are known, then you can write the report to fit uh, that narrative. It's just one of the possibilities. Or it could be that this was yet another instance where Matthew called his own police department for help in a domestic situation. But then why, if your whole point is to create a paper trail, why not go through dispatch? There's a non-emergency phone number to dispatch. And remember, by his own admission and the facts and the evidence, we know he has a handheld radio. He could have said, you know, this is my unit number. Please send um, please send an on-duty unit to my location to take a, an information report. But he doesn't do that. There's no record of anyone being dispatched or, frankly, him calling the police that night until the shots fired call. All we have are these sort of cryptic texts and a report written after the fact. You know, though, back to the question of, you know, why would he be calling his own police department? There's sort of two things I go back and forth on. One, you know, the vast majority of police officers would be embarrassed to report they were having problems at home. It's not uncommon in law enforcement because of the hours and because of the stress of the job um, and the you know different shifts and sleep cycles for there to be marital problems um, but and other relationship problems. But that's not something you go and advertise. And so it's unusual that he would continually be calling his own police department to report problems in his marriage. But then the other side of that is Wendell Beam. Remember, the, sh- the sheriff of that county, of Spalding County, was Matthew Boynton's grandfather. And he would continually go to him for advice. And according to his interviews, he was saying, well, granddad told me to call the police to document it. So that's really the other side of that possibility. And both 
are equally plausible. I want to bring up the topic of, you know, if, if we're talking about domestic problems, uh, a conversation about, you know, domestic abuse or violence is certainly one that could come up. We simply don't have facts to back that up. And in fact, Je- Matthew called police on, you know, whatever his motivations were on Jessica more than I believe Jessica ever, ever did. Uh, we just simply do not have police reports or facts, um, you know, at this point to, to paint that picture. Except we have the day that it happened, which is the day she was leaving, essentially. I mean, remember that the bag of allegedly stolen things of Jessica's was what she was packing to leave him. Out of all the things that Matthew kept, he kept the, the getaway bag, if you will, on the day, essentially, she was definitively leaving him. And, you know, statistically, the most dangerous day for a woman is the day she leaves if they're in an abusive relationship. Um, but that's just anecdotal at this point. And then, of course, you have where she was shot, whether she did it or someone else did it right in front of her was that composition book where she was filling out what she wanted in the divorce, custody and other things that she wanted out of the breakup. And that's exactly where she's shot, where she's filling out the sort of list of what she's going to tell her attorney. And then there are still today missing pages out of that composition book, according to Jessica. Yeah, that's one of the details that we don't necessarily highlight in the in the podcast, but I'm glad you bring it up, Brendan. Uh, missing pages from this composition book uh, that, that she is more or less journaling their relationship, right? Yeah. What do you, Jessica? What do you think of that? Has that troubled you? The sort of you know you you highlighted it in our initial reporting, you know, back in 2016 and 17 of the sort of pictures of the composition book. They're literally in the evidence photos. This is where she was shot. And of course, again, there's not a single drop of blood on that composition book, which was inches away from where she allegedly shot herself. Yeah, the composition book is actually, that's always troubled me because, you know, this is a a documentation in her words of not only all of their troubles and issues, but also her plans for a new life with her boys. You know, she had just gotten a new job and she was planning for a future and the missing pages from this this notebook, it, it makes you wonder where they are, what they said in them that, you know, if someone took them, and we don't know if that's the case, because again, Jessica doesn't remember much after their, their argument that night. So we don't know um, where they went. But if someone took them, was there something that was going to be incriminating for someone else that they needed to be removed before it was left there in the closet? And why not take the whole notebook then? Why leave it at all? And then, of course, as we mentioned in the podcast, there's, while Matthew's in the shower, her discovery of the other woman. That's on the same day. And that's evidence of either. I mean, is that the kind of thing that would get you to kill yourself, seeing that your husband's mistress uh, or is it the kind of thing that could get you killed if you discovered it? And again, it's Schrodinger's closet. All the evidence is definitive of one of those two things. And so we're left with which one, just where we started. And I think the 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 journal with missing pages is kind of significant in that 
it's almost a symbolic of this whole case. We're missing pieces. There's so many missing pieces, and that that's one of the uh, legitimate missing pieces um, in this whole thing. And that whole night, laying out the timeline of that whole night, um, y- you can see as it's kind of building up and 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 bubbling over the top and 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 then it's explosive and we just don't know what the explosion was was it on herself was it him exploding and and quite frankly you know Will and I have discussed this when we were putting the podcast together we don't know if it wasn't a third party who came in or you know maybe one of the other officers came in and helped i mean we don't know how she ended up being injured that night in the closet, which is what it all comes down to. And again, missing pieces. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. We delve pretty extensively into the gunshots that were heard by two sets of neighbors that night, an hour or more before Matthew reports hearing gunshots. We don't need to get into that in any great detail here, but we should bring it up. It's a, it's a pretty important part of this story. What always strikes me is really odd is that when Matthew says he does hear shots fired when he is returning home uh, after midnight, that zero neighbors report hearing gunshots at that time. So we get neighbors saying, yeah, we heard some earlier, but no one talks about it when Matthew says he heard them. I mean, presumably maybe they're all asleep, but still that could wake you up. Yeah, and then you have that when he calls it in, he sh- he says, I heard a shot coming up the stairs, uh, something to that effect. And then he says two rounds. So he says a shot, and then he says two rounds. That's a weird combination. You know, this is somebody who's used to talking on the radio and reporting incidents. Now, he's under stress and trauma, regardless of whether he's involved or he's 
a victim in all of this. But he says, I just heard a shot coming up the stairs, two rounds. Is it, a, is it one shot or is it two rounds? No one reports hearing shots at that time. And then you have the other uh, fact that the immediate next door neighbor who sort of corroborated Megan's uh, and her fiance's report of shots fired you know, over an hour earlier, they weren't even interviewed for months. And only when there was some scrutiny on the case from Sheila Matthews and from Will Sanders. Um, it's really important to point out that they didn't talk with the immediate next door neighbor because they didn't answer the door that night and they never came back until they were prodded to do so. They didn't talk with the trauma surgeon for months. I mean, this is like, you know, investigation 101. Let's say this was a homicide or at least you treat it like a possible attempted homicide until proven otherwise. The first thing you do is talk with the trauma surgeon or the medical examiner if it's a death. The second thing you do is talk with the immediate next door neighbor. And you certainly talk with the first officer on the scene and who had been there earlier that night before any shots were fired. And they don't do any of those things for months. The nature of the injury, the wound, Jessica's head. Let me ask you, Brendan, if it was a gunshot wound and and there's no, clearly no exit wound, that means the bullet sort of glanced off the top of her skull. Is that right? Well, that would be the assumption. But again, this is all conclusion selective. You know, when you're working at a, at a trauma, a level one trauma center and they tell you, or, or you're the EMS people responding and they tell you it was an attempted suicide. And then they show you the gun in the case of the EMS workers who arrived you're going to assume it's a gunshot wound. There's no proof it's a gunshot wound. I mean, you know, there's a a belief among some involved that it was a blunt trauma wound. So was it the butt of a gun hitting the top of the head and then the gun goes off because the finger's on the trigger? Um, There's no evidence of that on the gun itself. There doesn't, at the, you know, end of the gun, you don't see in the evidence pictures any tissue or blood, to be blunt. Um, uh, And, you know, the other thing is, um, you know, there, and this is the thing that sort of brings me back to, okay, let's evaluate all of the facts in the most favorable light to each conclusion. So if you assume for a moment that Jessica Boynton tried to shoot herself, uh, how is that possible with that particular weapon, uh, you know, the ammunition we're talking about is plus p hollow point police grade ammunition i have almost the same pistol i have a glock 27 it's just a smaller version of the same pistol and i can tell you if you get shot in the head with that gun uh you're you're probably not going to survive so how is it possible that uh, she could have been shot and that would be okay a glancing blow and then of course the concussion of the blast being so close to your to your head of the you know the muzzle right there, um, how could that have happened physically? So let me explain. If you look at the evidence photographs, there's a tactical flashlight attached to the Picatinny rail underneath that Glock. Uh, that's the little sort of tactical flashlight attachment um, that a lot of officers uh, use, and it extends beyond the edge of the slide in the barrel. So what that means is if you were to put this gun to your head, you would be putting the flashlight to your head, not the barrel. The barrel doesn't extend more than like a millimeter or two beyond the slide, but the tactical flashlight was a good three quarters to an inch beyond the edge of the barrel. So again, if you don't know guns, as 
Jessica, all evidence suggests she wasn't very familiar with firearms. If you were to put this gun to your head, you might think you're feeling the barrel when you're actually feeling that flashlight. And that puts the barrel another inch or so higher from the side of your head. So is it possible that happened and the bullet then was able to deflect off the top of the head? Um, And then the angle of the shot can be explained again, in a light most favorable to that possibility, if you tilt your head instead of the gun. So if Jessica tilted her head toward the pistol instead of the pistol toward her head, that would explain the upward trajectory of the bullet going through the wall, through the ceiling of the bedroom and out the attic. Um, Or she could have been hit in the head or she could have been shot. Um, All of these things are possible, but it doesn't mean the glancing blow doesn't mean that it was impossible that she tried to shoot herself. And there's possibly a missing bullet in all of this. And you went back to look for that bullet, right? We did. Uh, the So looking at the number of rounds in the magazine, um, most police officers are trained to carry uh, a round in the chamber. So just a brief explanation of how a semi-automatic pistol works. All of the bullets are in the magazine. Uh, but if you sort of charge the gun or load the gun from the magazine by activating the slide, that puts a bullet in the chamber. And then what most officers do, and I'm a former competition shooter, what I would do uh, is pop the magazine and add an extra round. Uh, so the, when they uh, photographed and inventoried the magazine, there, yes, there were two rounds missing from the magazine. But if he had one in the chamber, where's that? And the reason you carry one in the chamber is because um, you don't want to have to activate the slide uh, and charge the gun, so to speak, or load the gun when you're in a split-second decision as a police officer. Since this was in his duty belt, you would assume it was in the condition that he normally carried it. And that would mean there's a missing bullet and a missing casing. There's a missing round. But, Brendan, that could be a matter of preference, right, for some officers. Or it could be safety. I mean, he had two kids in the apartment too. So maybe he, you know, but that would mean that at the beginning of every shift, he would have to, at the end, he would have to sort of go through that process unless he's carrying the gun essentially not loaded, which is, especially with the Glock, which has a a number of built-in safeties, including the one on the trigger. Um, You know, when I used to carry uh, a, a Beretta, uh, a 92F, yeah, I didn't carry it loaded because, you know, that was a classic uh, hammer where it could have gone off. But when I carried a uh, concealed a Glock, yeah, I, I carried it uh, loaded because it's very safe when it's loaded. The detail of the locked closet and the fact that the closet locked from the inside, and I've gotten a, a, a variety of reactions to this part of the story. Some sort of, you know, saying, think that's a little weird. Some things. Some people think it's really weird that this closet locked from the inside. If you talk to Megan, uh, who is Jessica's neighbor, of course, uh, she says none of the other houses or the apartments in this complex have closets that lock from the inside, according to her. Um, what, what can you both say about that? It's it's an odd detail for sure. Um, but we're also talking about uh, a pretty large apartment complex. Um, and, and we don't know if that was... You know, when they moved in, you know, maintenance comes in, they change locks, they change broken door handles, they do all kinds of stuff like that. Was this just a case of they 
needed to replace a door handle and they used one they had uh, that happened to be a lock. Or... Like on the bathroom or something. Right, right. And um, the other scenario is, did someone actually change the lock from the bathroom one or change the doorknob from the bathroom one to the closet one? And why would someone do that? And I think for me, with it being a locked from the inside closet door, that lends more to a suicide attempt for me. Um, I don't think that that necessarily points the direction at anyone else. I think that if I'm going to go into a closet to do, to end my life, and I don't want anyone to be able to get to me and stop me, I would lock it from the inside. Oh, I always took it the other way, that if someone else did this to Jessica, then they would have put this lock there so that they could keep her in there I, I i'm not even sure why or how that how that works out. but that wouldn't keep her in there if it's locked from the inside she's the one that could get it open well if if somebody did this to jessica she's injured or god forbid dead um then it's going to prevent somebody from getting in there quickly but i don't know what that achieves i go ahead brennan what are, what are your thoughts on the locked closet again this is schrodinger's closet why is there a bathroom style lock on this closet If it was a lock with a key where you could lock it from the inside, but you could also unlock it and lock it with a key from the outside, that would make sense because Officer Boynton kept his duty weapon in there with two children in the house. Of course, you'd want to keep it in a locked closet, but you wouldn't have a lock that can only be locked and unlocked from the inside. There's no reason for you to want to lock yourself in a closet except in this particular situation. And so it certainly lends to the possibility that this was reverse engineered. It certainly supports the case a lot better, as Jessica says, as Jessica Knoll says, that it supports the case a lot better. She was found in a locked closet because immediately an investigator's like, well, did someone do this to her? Well, she was in a locked closet. Sounds like an open and shut case. Until you look at the lock. Can you lock and unlock those, or at least unlock one of those bathroom locks from the outside? Yes, we've all done it with a screwdriver there's usually that little hole where you either have to turn it if it's the turn style or push it if it's the you know the push style bathroom lock but there is no reason for that lock to be on that door unless it is again an extraordinary coincidence uh that this happens to be the one apartment in that complex where the maintenance people were out of the regular locks and used a bathroom lock on the closet uh it And I don't believe in coincidences when they start to stack up. There's a lot of coincidences here, and you have to believe in all of them to believe the GBI's conclusion. I like the the point that Will brought up. If someone did hurt her, shoot her, blunt force trauma, whatever it might have been, that if you lock it from the inside, then first responders would have a harder time getting to her. So that's an interesting point of view for that. Yeah, and then she's against the door, which is also troubling. I don't know. It's an, it's another one of those mysteries. Yeah, and, and remember, it's it, you could you can lock you can lock these bathroom locks from you you basically with the door open, either turn the little knob or you push the button in and then you pull it closed. I mean, my 12-year-old's doing that to his little sister all the time. Uh so, you know, to lock her out of their shared bathroom. Um so it's not impossible to do. So the the locked closet, which is sort of a slam dunk for attempted suicide, turns out to not be a slam dunk because it could also have been 
moved from the bathroom over to the closet in order to make it appear like an attempted suicide. Jessica, you and I spent time in Griffin, Georgia. There's Sheila Matthews in the middle of town looking across the street at, I believe, City Hall or whatever you want to call it, but the city, sort of the the center of government there, if you will. Uh, She is a dogged investigator, as Brendan mentioned, and has been covering this case for years. Yeah, and and it's not a case that's going away. Uh, At the very least, you know, she, you know, she's reporting and investigating Things within the administration, things within the Griffin Police Department. Now, I, I want to add and remind people that the Griffin Police Department were not the investigative uh, unit on this case. It was the the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, the GBI. Um, but she is continuing to investigate and and dig into these things that are happening in this town and in that county. And um, and she's relentless, as she should be. And so um, this isn't a case that's gone away for her. In fact, it's, it's, uh, it's affected her professional relationships with, with folks because she won't give up. When one part of it seems to close, another um, rabbit hole opens up for her. And so she's still investigating uh, a lot of the th- things that have kind of trickled off of this case into the the city and the county. Let me talk briefly about Will Sanders. I, I have to say I just love the idea of a, a truck-driving whistleblower from a, a rural town in Georgia. He's amazing. Will Sanders is, hands down, the best person I have ever seen at filing open records requests. <laughs> right. I do it for a living, and he is 10 times better than I am. He has this, he has this um, instinct. There, there's something, you know, I teach other reporters and you can teach some tradecraft of investigative reporting. What you can't teach is that sort of chess match uh, intuition, the sort of having a gut feeling that something's not right and then knowing what moves to make so that three moves from now you get the record you want. Um, without going into great detail, I can tell you the case that, I'm, uh, on which I met Will was a case in Spalding County where the previous sheriff had been covering up a sex scandal involving one of his captains and a sitting state rep who was on the Judiciary Committee, a disgraced former judge who was kicked out for his own sex scandal, uh, resigned essentially as a judge, was helping them cover it up. The reason I can say all of this as fact is because Will got the recordings when Will couldn't get the actual internal affairs report because of the criminal prosecution going on at the time, he went and got the phone records for the entire sheriff's office and then figured out whose number was whose and then requested the recordings and got recordings of the state rep conspiring to conceal the sex scandal. I mean, I wouldn't even have thought of doing that. Will is a genius at also making things, uh, this, this is really his secret, uh, One, obviously, he does this as a hobby. So while he's driving a truck, he's paying attention to the road, but his mind is filing records requests that he then puts on paper once he stops at a truck stop or something. And his genius is that he gives these government agencies two choices, and they're both really bad choices. And he hopes they make the the less bad of the two choices, and that's what he wants them to do. And so... So he got, Will got the entire unredacted GBI case file because he gave them so much trouble 
uh, that they finally, the easiest thing to do is just give it to him. Where normally we would get it completely redacted, Will got it unredacted, the entire report. And he did that because of his his skill as a, a records sort of um, cowboy. In the case of this story, one of the big pieces of missing evidence, and it wasn't necessarily an open records request in the beginning, but Matthew Boynton's oath of office, they just couldn't find in order to take it to, to trial. Well, they didn't try. I mean, you know, clearly somehow either the police department was pretending they couldn't find it or someone made it disappear from the police department file. It was Sheila's intricate knowledge of the way the system works because she knows from her own experience as a reporter and the wife of a police officer that they take the oath at the magistrate court. Well, the DA's office is literally one floor below the magistrate court's office. So the DA's office that, quote unquote, couldn't find the oath of office was literally feet vertically from where that oath of office was stored, where it was administered. And Sheila knew this and went and simply asked for a copy and got it. Brendan, any final thoughts on that night? Any details we haven't covered that are are nagging at you or you want to bring up? There's one sort of glaring fact that the GBI really hinged its entire investigation and conclusion on. Um, And again, it's also important to point out the GBI doesn't usually clear officers. As DeMarco said to Sheila Matthews, we don't draw conclusions. We just issue our report. In this case, the director of the GBI at the time, Vernon Keenan, personally wrote a letter first saying it was a suicide and that Jessica was dead uh, and then correcting that letter and saying, no, it was an attempted suicide. This is extremely unusual for them to in writing clear an officer. That clearance of Matthew Boynton hinged really on the DNA on the gun. We haven't talked much about it, but the GBI actually did a touch DNA uh, sample on the gun. They swabbed the gun, ran the DNA. They had gotten the blood from Jessica while she was in a coma with Matthew's um, permission and then matched it to the gun. And they kind of saw that as definitive, clearly. They're like, this is the thing that's going to clearly, you know, this is the thing that's going to confirm what we think happened is her DNA was on the gun. But take a step back and look at where she was and whose gun it was. DNA doesn't put you in a time. It puts you in a place. All it means is that at some point, uh, Jessica Boynton touched Matthew Boynton's gun. And it was in her walk-in closet, a shared closet the two had. And it was found under her body. So touch DNA, and they said they found more of it near the trigger and more of it, you know, where she would be holding the gun if she'd fired it. Um, DNA is kind of an all or nothing thing because they do, you know, they basically multiply the DNA cells, uh, PCR and all of that to, to basically uh, make more DNA so they can test it. It's kind of a, it's, it's, you can't be sort of DNA or, you know, a lot of DNA it really comes down to, you know, are you pregnant? Are you not pregnant? Yes, her DNA was on the gun. That's really all you can say. Um, to find the DNA of an officer's wife on his gun in their closet when it's under her bleeding body um, doesn't really tell us anything other than at some point she touched the gun, including right before she was found because it was found underneath her. So the DNA on the gun doesn't tell us anything other than at some point she had made contact with that firearm. All right, we'll leave it at that then, Brendan. One more thing for people to think about as they 
finish listening to the officer's wife. And, of course, if we have more to tell, if this story develops or changes over time, we will, of course, let our listeners know. Uh, I will say that, Jessica, you and I met with Jessica Lester last fall in, in November. She's, as we say in the podcast, you know, started a new life. She's doing remarkably well considering everything she's been through. Yeah, she really is. I mean, she's still going through some issues and, but she's leaving the, that event of her life somewhat behind her so that she can move forward. And she's engaged now. She has a third son um, and they are living their lives best they can and they seem happy. And she said she's at a really good point in her life right now. And uh, we mentioned the status of Matthew Boynton, at least as much as we know. Brendan, you have called the, you know, official departments who report on officers uh, where where they are in terms of their career and what they can do. You've made that call quite recently. Yeah. Matthew Boynton self-reported to the Peace Officer Standards and Training Council in Georgia. They're the ones who issue the certifications. He self-reported his arrest, which is one of the rules, the department, once he's arrested, is supposed to report and he's supposed to report. He did so. And as a result, they scheduled a hearing uh, and opened an investigation of their own. But the minute he was no build, um, when the grand jury, a year after he was arrested, um, mysteriously came back with, you know, no indictment, um, essentially the G- or the post investigation was um, was scrapped and he could continue to be a police officer. For some reason, he let his peace officer certification lapse uh, last summer. And so he currently has an expired police certification. If he were to simply go complete the necessary annual trainings and other requirements to renew his certification, he could be a police officer anywhere in the state of Georgia tomorrow. All right, Brendan Keefe, chief investigator at WXIA 11 Alive in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks again for all you've done to help us with with the officer's wife and bringing us this story. And we're never done investigating. Jessica Knoll uh, with Vault Studios, thanks again for all of your help. And uh, we will, of course, let our listeners know when we have our, our next podcast coming out soon. Right. And also, I want to let people know that if you want to talk about the officer's wife or any of the other cases we're looking at, go to our Facebook group at Inside the Crime Vault. And you can discuss this and other cases with me. Brendan's on there. Um, and we can talk about what's going on as it happens. All right. Thanks, Jessica. And for Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University, Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today.